Building a house takes two things, money and a solid plan. The same is true for IT modernization. Now, thanks to a ballooning technology modernization fund, agencies will have the money they've said they need. Their plans, though, still need a little work. That's according to the director of the Information Technology and Cybersecurity Team at the Government Accountability Office, Kevin Walsh. Kevin, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. And you have looked at this issue before, but now there's a billion dollars in the TMF that wasn't there before. So what do we need to know here about what agencies have to do? Thanks. And again, thanks for having me, Tom. So we've looked at this, as you noted, a couple times over the years. In this instance, we asked agencies what their most critical modernization programs in need of attention and and basically modernization were. Uh, They flagged 65 different systems over the 24 CFO Act agencies. And we looked at those 65 ourselves and flagged the 10 that we thought were the most critical in need of modernization. And basically, we found that agencies had, in some cases, rudimentary plans or, or more developed plans, but not nearly to the degree that we want. And we're not looking for anything you know, over the moon in terms of requirements. We wanted them to have some idea of timeframes on when these things would get going and finish an idea of the work necessary to modernize the system, and finally, and critically, a plan to turn the legacy system off, because all too often we see those legacy systems running in parallel with the newly modernized system. So that's really what we want. We want agencies to be thinking about their modernizations and have a plan for them to go forward, which, if they're applying for the TMF, is very similar to the requirements that the TMF Oversight Board would need to review to review and approve applications. And it looks like the Defense Department, of all places, was the most ahead in all of this. They had included milestones, they had described the works they need to do, and they had a planned disposition for the legacy systems, the shutoff date. So it looks like DOD is ahead of the pack here. Correct. The two systems that we flagged as most critical that actually had the work done were the systems at the Departments of Defense and Interior. Since then, one additional agency, the Small Business Administration, did tick their final remaining box on the legacy plan that we were looking for. So there are three that kind of have done this really, really preliminary work. But again, of the 10, only having three done, that means there are seven out there that don't. And the Office of Personnel Management looks pretty bad here. They have a partial, partial, and a no for respect to turning off the old systems, partial on completed milestones, partial on completed the work. And yet they're the often cited, even though they're not a huge agency, but an influential one and one that's been twisted and reorganized so much lately, you would think they would be ready to roll with everything they've got so they can get that money. Yeah, especially in light of their past security incidents and their persistent concerns, you know, all of the sensitive information they have there, it's really, really concerning that they haven't done more to modernize. And this system in particular basically was on the infrastructure side of things, hardware, software, service components that supported a lot of their IT. So again, it's stuff that we really, really would like them to modernize. In Treasury, I guess you're speaking, well, I'm I'm guessing, mostly about the IRS, and they do have a statement of work that they need to do to modernize. But interestingly, no shutoff date for the legacy system. Is that a reference to their master file system, which has resisted modernization efforts for 30, 40 years? So we were very, very careful in this report not to name specific systems. We didn't want to create a target list for any bad actors. So I won't be able to speak to whether that is associated with that system. However, that seems like a reasonable conclusion. Now, interestingly, that system at Treasury and the IRS is an interesting use case because 
They only spend about 15, 16 million per year on operations and on the labor to keep that system going. But the Treasury Department estimated that it would cost $1.6 billion to modernize. So there's this really, really fascinating push-pull here on this system as well as many other systems. We're, we're not replacing like for like. We're not taking a, a really old green screen you know, system and replacing it with a new green screen system in the cloud. As agencies are modernizing, we want to see them get better functionality, better performance, perhaps very importantly in this day and age, uh, better security, ease of updating, perhaps even having some of these systems supported by the vendor, whether that be hardware or software, which many of them were not. So it's not going to be cheap to do. And in some cases, it may not save money. Now, that's not to say that agencies shouldn't be focusing on the ones that save money, because as you know, the Technology Modernization Fund requires repayment. So getting that payback is going to be very, very important to the TMF. But there's going to be some systems out there that cost a lot of money and aren't going to save money to do it, but they are critical to serving our citizens and the taxpayers better. We're speaking with Kevin Walsh. He's a director on the Information Technology and Cybersecurity team at the Government Accountability Office. And the implication of this report is that this is an interest keenly to Congress, isn't it? Absolutely. The 65 systems that agencies think are the oldest and most in need of modernization, and then we've winnowed that down to just 10 across the government. And these are systems that manage dams and power plants, that have student loan data, that manage basically critical functions in our government. So absolutely, Congress should be paying attention to this, and we are working with them, and they are. So it's very heartening to see. Department of Health and Human Services got the gray bar along with education. They just don't have a documented modernization plan. Are they nevertheless among the 65 systems that are identified as needing modernizing? Absolutely. And the system at the Health and Human Services is actually a very distributed system. It works with the Indian Health Service, which has little nodes all across the nation. And each of those nodes has slightly different or tweaked versions of the system to operate in its local parameters. And they may also have different hardware. So that's going to be a really challenging one to modernize. So we really would like to see them have that rudimentary modernization plan, some idea of the timeframes and the work needed and a plan to get the old stuff out of there. And with respect to the costs and the possible savings or the efficiencies, isn't this a good example of where you as an agency, one as an agency, should be very Fatara-like? And maybe this is led by the CIO, but you've got to have the agency, at least deputy head of the agency and the CFO kind of signing on to the modernization plan? Absolutely. At its heart, Fatara is all about getting our C-suite to work together. It had many, many stipulations. For example, there was one in there that required CIOs to review and approve IT contracts. So previously, IT contracts would kind of go through the acquisition shop and the CFO shop without really involving the CIO, which is critically important in this day and age. You know, your CIO should have some say in that. They want to make sure that the hardware that you're buying is compatible with the existing network and not going to require excessive tweaks or that the software isn't already covered under a software license. So absolutely correct. We want the CIO to be involved with the entire C-suite, all the way up to the deputy secretary and the secretary in making these decisions on these modernizations. Noteworthy for not being on your top 10 list of agencies that yes or no here is Veterans Affairs. They're not there. And the other one that's not there is agriculture. And agriculture, I guess, did some pretty heavy lifting on modernization in the funds that have been available for the last few years during the Trump administration. So what about agriculture? What about VA? 
So those agencies are included in the 65 that we tagged, and there is a anonymized list in the in the back of our statement. Agriculture only flagged one. We're not sure why they flagged one. We we asked them, hey, what are your most critical modernizations? Most agencies flagged two to three. Agriculture flagged one, and VA is also in that list at the back. VA flagged three. Both of the agencies, agriculture, flagged their system as critical, according to them, and VA flagged their three as all critical as well, but varying degrees of security risk. So that's not to say that they don't have these systems that are in need of modernization. It's just when we looked at them, we didn't think they rose up to the the top 10 in the government. All right. So then in order to apply for those funds, these are the things that the board that decides the allocation of the funds are going to be looking at. So basically, it's fair to say agencies should get all three columns set to go. What do they need to do? Identify the systems carefully and have a timeline for getting rid of the old. Fair enough? That is fair. I don't think that's entirely what the TMF looks for, and and they they work very carefully with agencies on their application process to get a more in-depth idea of what the work is going to be doing, as well as cost estimates associated with what they're going to do and how they're going to save money because they want to make sure that they can get paid back. But yes, this is very, very related to what they need to do to apply for the TMF funds. Kevin Walsh is a director on the Information Technology and Cybersecurity team at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Again, thank you for having me. We'll post this interview plus a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. 
So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision 
despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, Take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. 
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of.